Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Home health care providers are on alert following an announcement on Wednesday that CMS intends to implement in December its home health pre-claim review demonstration. Standing by to report our lead story this morning is William A. Dombey. Mr. Dombey is the president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. Also on today's Monitor Monday, health care attorney David Glazer is standing by with another example of risky business. Alan Fink-Samnick reports on the latest compliance issue, the requirements to document alleged sex and labor exploitations. You see him as trying to put the squeeze on small independent providers to make them larger. Dwayne Abbey has that report later in the broadcast. Marvin Mitchell reports on a rush to judgment, the rush to transfer patients to hospice. And Nancy Beck he has the latest hot topics in the Monitor Money Listener Survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ron Hurst, who's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. As you know, today is October 1st, and that's the day that all of the 2019 inpatient rule changes take effect, which includes removing the authenticated admission order as a condition of payment. As I reported here in past episodes, sorting out the implications of this change is difficult. And if you're still trying to sort it out, be sure to see my two-part series on Rack Monitor e-news published over the last two weeks. I can't give you definitive answers, but hopefully can steer you in the right direction. Now, October 1st is also a very special day, as you can see from our graphic. Today is the fifth birthday of the two midnight rule. Who would have ever thought that five years after its creation, we would still be trying to figure out what CMS really means? So happy birthday to the two midnight expectation, the two midnight presumption, the two midnight benchmark, and of course, the two midnight exceptions. We're all looking forward to many more ambiguous years together. Now, do any of you have problems with Medicare Advantage denials? Well, you're not alone. The Office of Inspector General does too. Last week, they released a report called Medicare Advantage Appeals Outcomes and Audit Findings Raised Concerns About Service and Payment Denials. Why did the OIG do this? Well, their statement said that a central concern about the capitated payment model used in Medicare Advantage is the potential incentive for insurers to inappropriately deny access to service and payment in an effort to increase their profits. Now, CMS has been auditing MA plans for a long time, and the results are not favorable for those plans. In 2015, of the 140 contracts that they audited, they cited 56% for inappropriately denying requests and 45% for sending insufficient denial letters. The OIG goes on to describe previous enforcement actions taken by CMS against these plans, noting that nine MA plans were fined a total of $1.9 million dollars with one plan actually fined $3,300. I'll let you decide if $3,300 fine would act as a deterrent. Another plan was inappropriately denied over 2,000 claims, and it was fined only $150 per denial. Now, what did the OIG find in this latest audit of 2014 to 2016? That the approximately 300,000 appeals that were filed by patients and providers each year 
over 75% were overturned. They also reported there were 75 MA contracts that had over 98% of denials overturned. The OIG also notes that only a small number of denials are actually appealed. Together, these facts tell them that the appeal process is too confusing and often overwhelming for most patients. And if more patients and providers appealed, their chances of success would be higher. As with many OIG reports, they recommend CMS enhance their oversight of MA plans and better educate beneficiaries. I'm sure today's listeners are hoping CMS actually follows through on that. Finally, I'll be presenting a webinar this Thursday on shared decision-making. I hope you all make the decision to listen. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest on topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Well, good morning, Chuck, and happy birthday to the two midnight rule. Who would have figured we'd be celebrating? Um, our hot topic for today is continuing on CMS's targeted probe and educate program. Since October 1st, it's gotten pretty deeply involved with many of our Medicare administrative contractors. For this morning, I want to highlight the Novitas uh, MAC, and they have two MACs, the JH MAC and the JL MAC, both Part A and Part B. Both of their websites for the both MACs have targeted probe and educate sites up. So it's a great place to go and find information. You will be able to find on their website the topics and the schedules of reviews. In other words, you can see for Part A and Part B if they're in Round 1 or Round 2 and what's going on. They provide documentation checklists so in advance you can know what would come in the Welcome to Targeted Probe and Educate letter. And they have education documents that they are providing to people. So it would be quite interesting to take a look at that. Probably the more telltale thing is at the Novitas websites for each of the MACs. They are actually posting the results. And the results are a couple-of-page uh, Word document that's a PDF that states for a specific targeted probe and educate topic what the results are. For example, for the JL MAC under initial hospital evaluation E&M services round one, they probed 75 total reviews and gave a pie chart of the top reason for the denials and so forth. So I would like to encourage everybody to get to their MAC website to uh, look for the targeted probe and educate and determine if the topics are posted, if reports are posted, and any other further information. So once again, it's an opportunity, like our good friend Frank Cohen always tells us, profile yourself. So with that being said, I will ask our producer, Emily, to come up with our poll this morning. And our poll is courtesy of David Glazer, who is going to tie this poll to his upcoming risky business topic. So which of these statements on shared visits are true? Number one, there is no federal regulation addressing shared visits like that one. If you think number two, a physician can bill for a shared visit if they are available by phone, select number two. Or three, a shared visit requires direct supervision by a physician, select number three. And four, the physician must personally document her work in a shared visit. We'll be back a little bit later, and David, I hope you're going to enlighten us. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. 
Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Dwayne Abbey, Alan Fink, Samnick, David Glazer, Marvin Mitchell, and our special guest, William Dombey. This is Monday. It's October the 1st. It's the first day of the government's fiscal year, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Today, doctors and patients need to share in the decision-making process for ICDs and watchman procedures. And if decision-making is not shared correctly or at all, the recovery audit contractors will decide. Because shared decision-making for these procedures is approved for complex reviews by the RACs. During a remarkable webcast this Thursday, Dr. Ronald Hirsch will explain the process of shared decision-making. He will illustrate his presentation with actual case studies, and he'll augment the presentation with tools you'll need to ensure compliance with the regulations and to be prepared for more widespread adoption of this patient-centered concept. Plan to attend Medicare Shared Decision-Making. Now the RACs will decide. To register, click on the handout tab in today's broadcast. Thanks very much, Clark Anthony. And now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what is risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. The discussion about Incident 2 services in the hospital prompted some questions about shared visits leading to our poll in this segment. So um, first, shared visits are a relatively recent creation, and they exist only in the manuals. There's no federal statute or even a federal regulation mentioning shared visits. They exist only in Chapter 12 of the Medicare Claims Processing Manual. So a shared visit occurs if both the physician and a non-physician practitioner see the patient in the hospital on the same day, although not necessarily at the same time. You can combine their effort into one evaluation and management service. There's no need for direct supervision. In fact, the non-physician visit might occur in the morning when the doctor is literally in another state as long as the doctor conducts the visit sometime earlier or later that day. The physician could even be on an airplane and unavailable by phone when the non-physician practitioner is present. Now, exactly what the physician must do is where things take a turn for the weird. The manual suggests that a key test is whether the physician provides any face-to-face portion of the E&M encounter with the patient. Read literally, popping in and asking, how are you, would get you a history element and qualify. The manual goes on to say, if there was no face-to-face encounter and the physician only reviews the patient's medical record, the service must be billed under the um, uh, non-physician's services of the non-physician practitioner. Now, we haven't hit the weird part yet, however, because that's buried later in the same chapter of the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, but down in a section entitled Nursing Facilities Service. So that section opens with a sentence that says, split and shared visits can't be reported in a SNF setting. So since it's in a section about SNFs and says you can't do shared visits there, there are basically two reasons that no reasonable human would ever continue looking at this section to get information about the expectations for split or shared visits. Nevertheless, it's here that there's language that says that both the non-physician practitioner and the physician must, quote, personally perform a substantive portion of the E&M face-to-face with the same patient on the same date of service. 
it elaborates that a substantive portion of the E&M visit involves all or some portion of the history, exam, or medical decision-making components of the E&M service. Now, this is super-duper crazy. You could do a substantive portion of the medical decision-making on the phone without seeing the patient. So I know First Coast, the contractor for Florida, has picked up on that substantive portion language, um, and it also appears in some CMS documents. If someone ever tries to impose it on you in an audit, fight. It's not in the section about shared visits, and it's in a section that says uh, it's completely that it only applies to skilled nursing facility visits. So basically, the manual here fails the intellectual consistency and the careful drafting test. So finally, as for whether the physician must personally document her work, I don't even understand what that means. I've seen text like that in a variety of types of visits, but does dictation count as personally documenting your work? I would say yes, and I would say a scribe also counts as personally documenting your work. So Chuck, I was tempted to turn to Sesame Street for a song about sharing, but instead I'm opting for a pun, so get ready to groan. I'm going to go with a song by Cher. If I could turn back time, I would have someone write the manual more clearly. If I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that'll hurt you, and you'd stay. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That's uh, healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredericks Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The latest compliance issue facing providers is the requirement that they document clients who might be at risk of sex and labor exploitation. Reporting this developing story is Alan Fink-Samdick. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you. Well, 2018 has seen the launch of the ICD-10Z codes, and starting today, well, I was running ahead of myself. We have T codes to address human trafficking. The American Hospital Associations Against Violence Initiative, the Catholic Health Initiatives, and clinicians at Massachusetts General Hospital's Freedom Clinic all joined forces with the CDC to develop 29 new ICD-10 codes. Well, 18 months in the making, the new codes are hoped to leverage the ability of providers to identify and document clients at risk of sex and labor exploitation. The National Human Trafficking Resource Center tracked over 40,000 cases in the U.S. between 2007 and 2017, with the numbers continuing to rise. The Polaris Project, which is amongst the largest organizations dealing with human trafficking, identifies over 40.3 million victims globally, 81% trapped in forced labor, 25% children, and 75% women and girls. Now, the new codes will serve as the official diagnosis to describe diseases, causes of diseases, and deaths related to human trafficking. A particular concern are the profound health and behavioral health manifestations that beg attention by practitioners, plus the lost opportunities to identify and aid victims. Hospitals play a critical role in assessing, identifying, and assisting victims of trafficking. 88% of sex trafficking survivors report contact with a health care provider while they were being exploited, mostly in hospital emergency departments. Victims can seek treatment for a range of injuries and issues, including occupational injuries, sexually transmitted diseases, 
pregnancy or related complications, and HIV tests. Documentation of what professional will observe in these situations is vital to confirm a victim is being trafficked, just like those Z codes that account for the social determinants, use of the T codes plus a few Y and Z codes will rely heavily on clinical and non-clinical documentation to validate the circumstances. Anything during the assessment can cause the clinical gut of practitioners to scream loudly, and mostly because something feels off. Maybe the physical injury is inconsistent with the report. Maybe the victim is accompanied by someone who does all the talking, never allowing the victim to speak up or speak to a practitioner. Well, to ramp up awareness of the new codes, the AHA has provided the content on their Hospitals Against Violence website, lists some guidance and resources on combating human trafficking, workplace violence prevention, youth violence prevention. Now, the codes include, oh, T7451 and 52 for adult and child sexual forced exploitation, T74 6.61 and 62, forced labor exploitation for adults and children, and the list goes on. The Y codes 07.6, multiple perpetrators of maltreatment and neglect. The Z codes, 04.81 and 0.82 for encounter for terminate for examination and observation of victims following forced sexual exploitation. Z62.813, personal history of forced labor sexual exploitation in childhood, and Z91.42, personal history of forced labor or sexual exploitation. You didn't get those codes, don't worry about it. We have them on our uh, handouts website. We have a FAQ sheet from the AHA on the new codes, a wonderful one-page handout to educate practitioners on what to look for in determining if a patient is a victim of trafficking, called 10 Red Flags, and links to local and federal resources. Catch Talk 10 Tuesday tomorrow when the topic will receive further attention. Remember, your clinical gut tells you what your head hasn't figured out yet. Stay aware document, and be diligent. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was Ellen Fink-Samnick. Ellen is a nationally recognized authority on the social determinants of health. Here now with the Monitor Monday Hospice Report is Marvin Mitchell. Thanks, Chuck. In last week's RAC Monitor on this subject, in one paragraph, I inadvertently used the term palliative care in place of -of end-of-life care. I'll explain in a moment. In the 2019 IPPS rules, CMS added inpatient transfers to hospice to those admissions subject to reduced DRG payments if the length of stay is less than the geometric mean minus a day. Authority for this comes from the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018. CMS reported that commentators on the proposed rule objected to this change because, quote, such payment policies would dissuade transfers to hospice care. It should, or maybe change the reasons for transitions to hospice. A quick look at the 2018 list of MSDRGs reveals that, for the most part, the geometric means are shorter than in previous years. Most common ones are around three and a half days, higher weighted in the 12 to 13 day range. Exposure to reduced payments can be managed through early patient and family engagement. To what end are hospice referrals made? If death is imminent, why refer to hospice? 
If frequent readmissions are a problem, why not refer to hospice? Here's a true story. A family wanted a patient very near death to die at home. Over my objections to the plan, hospice enrolled the frail patient who died alone in transit. Hospitals can uh, develop and offer end-of-life care in the hospital that will meet patient and family needs. A longer length of stay may result, but either way, a better outcome is achieved. Palliative care, on the other hand, aims to keep patients at home. Nurses, nurse practitioners, and physicians are available to deal with crises at home. Avoidable readmissions become less common. None of my patients in palliative care have returned to the hospital in the last six months. The hospital stay prior to hospice enrollment is typically within that important geometric mean. Optimal recovery is achieved. Patients are, after all, not being sent home to die. Inform your discharge planning engagement. First, identify if a patient is a high utilizer with significant chronic disease. Physicians, be fearless in talking to your patients about palliative care. By doing so, you are helping patients enjoy optimal wellness. On palliative care, my mother, with end-stage COPD, went two years until her passing at home without a single admission. Ask if the available hospices offer palliative care. Start patient and family engagement early in the stay. Let's expect more of hospice and ourselves. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Marvin. That was Marvin Mitchell. Mr. Mitchell is the Director of Case Management and Social Services at San Gorgoni Memorial Hospital here in Southern California. Is CMS putting the squeeze on small independent providers to make them larger? Here now with that report is author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey. Good morning, Dwayne. Good morning. Yeah, let's shift gears, everybody, just a little tiny bit. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, CMS and the way that they view healthcare payment, particularly payment systems. And they love to look at things from a national average perspective. And uh, ever since uh, 2008 in particular, We've been doing more and more bundling, uh, particularly in the outpatient arena. But as long as everything is budget neutral, uh, CMS uh, seems to be satisfied. Now, we've seen a proposal uh, to coalesce certain E&M codes, 99212 through 99215, into a single code, and likewise, 99202, 99205 into a single code, which uh, on the surface appears to be, uh, well, not totally unreasonable. But if you start looking at the financial impacts, it means that there's going to be a, at least I think, a significant shifting from the specialists that use the high-level codes to the uh, primary care that uses the smaller codes. But according to CMS, it's it's budget neutral. It all averages out. Now, that's fine at the national level, but what about at the individual provider, clinic, hospital level? Well, we've got a problem because now profitability becomes an issue because the 
averaged payment may not be uh, meeting our cost for a particular service set of services, items, whatever it happens to be. And so this uh, view of payment processes is creating a, um, well, it's creating some impetus for how we organize things. Now, we've already been through something pretty similar to this in uh, to, uh, 2014, uh, CMS decided to go with a single G-code for outpatient clinic visits, coalescing all 10 codes, 99201 through 99215, into a single code with a single averaged payment. Okay, is that good? Is that bad? Well, I'm not 100% certain, but uh, I don't know quite how CMS was able to get away with doing that because the statistical variation seems to be quite significant to me. Now, one place where I really noticed this, and uh, you'll find this in the Federal Register, has to do with brachytherapy sources. Now, Congress mandated, several years ago, Congress mandated that these be paid on a cost pass-through basis, which makes sense because there's extreme variability in this area, depending upon the size of the hospital, the scope of services being provided, etc. But I want to give you one quote from the Federal Register that I think is very telling. Uh, this comes from the uh, November 14th, 2015 Federal Register, and it says, under the OPPS, it is the relativity of costs, not the absolute costs, that is important. And we believe that brachytherapy sources are appropriately paid according to the standard OPPS approach. In other words, CMS doesn't care if you're being properly paid at the uh, individual provider level. It's the absolute cost that we have to live with in terms of profitability. They're only worried about the relativity of cost. Also, please notice that there's a key word in that quote, and that is the key word that you should be looking for in the Federal Register. That is the word believe. They believe it, but they really don't know it. We'll have to wait and see what happens. But if you're wondering why we're seeing uh, more integration, why uh, providers are coalescing together, this is the reason why. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dwayne, very much. That was Dwayne Abbey. Dwayne is the president of Abbey and Abbey Consultants, and you can read Dwayne's reporting on our homepage at Rack Monitor. Last Wednesday, CMS announced it intends to implement in December its home health preclaim review demonstration. Reporting our lead story this morning is William Domby. Mr. Domby is the president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Chuck, and thanks for the opportunity to join you today. We have what we call version two of the preclaim review now scheduled to start in Illinois no earlier than December 10th, 2018. The no earlier than might need to be underlined. We're not certain 
CMS will be ready, uh, but it was originally no earlier than October 1st, so I think they've given themselves some time to prepare. Preclaim review uh, was something which took place in the second half of 2016 and first quarter of 2017 uh, had a significant impact on home health in Illinois to a tune of about a $100 million annualized reduction in Medicare spending for 2017. The new version uh, is now known as the Review Choice uh, Demonstration Program. Uh, the differences are somewhat material. Uh, the main difference is that there are options that home health agencies have. Option one is to have all claims go through a pre-claim review process. If the provider chooses that option and then does not submit for pre-claim review, the claim will automatically be denied. One modification of the first version of pre-claim review is that a provider of services that has a 90% affirmation rate after six months of submissions could choose to then be exempted from further pre-claim review with the exception of spot checking at about a 5% random uh, incidence. The second option is to have all claims go through post-payment review. That would put the provider of services in a bit more of a risk position relative to the delivery of care and then determining whether or not they will be able to keep the payment. The third option, in my view, is no option at all. In that case, the provider would not go through pre-claim or post-payment review, but instead would accept a 25% rate reduction and then be susceptible to a RAC review. Uh, the 25% rate reduction for uh, our view is fairly telling, and we've recommended to CMS that any home health agency that chooses that option should be referred to the FBI for investigation. 25% uh, rate reduction should be unsustainable except by people who are committing fraud. The focus for this, pro for, for this demonstration program are the following five states within the Palmetto Government Benefits Administration Territory, Illinois, which would be first up, Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, and Texas, but no particular schedule has been set for those four states. Uh, providers of services would be able to submit for reviews on paper, by fax, or electronic portal. There were quite a few operational difficulties with the first generation of pre-claim review. CMS does now state that they have fixed many of those things. We will wait and see if that is true or not. The essence of the program is ostensibly to ferret out fraud, but in fact, more than anything else, it dealt with high volumes of documentation issues, all correctable by most providers of services. CMS does try to defend the program as an anti-fraud measure, saying that there were some UPIC referrals that came out of the Illinois experience. That Illinois experience was an interesting one, a tremendous amount of administrative burden, tremendous amount of paperwork, uh, and at the early stages, many, many of the pre-claim reviews were rejections. Later, though, transformed into affirmations when the paperwork problems were corrected. Ultimately, most providers of services had virtually a 100% acceptance rate, but it took seven to nine months to get there. This will be an interesting trip for home health agencies in Illinois. Those that had a 90% affirmation rate over a six-month period do have that opportunity to be exempted, but this is one of those times when home health agencies' knees are knocking again for a huge administrative burden. So, Chuck, again, thanks for the opportunity to join you all today. Thank you very much, Bill. That was Bill Dombey. Mr. Dombey is the president of the National Association 
for home care and hospice. And now it's time for the Monitor Money Listener Survey. Once again, Nancy Beckley. Nancy. All righty, Chuck. And as a result, today we have 10% listed there's no federal regulation addressing shared visits. 3% of our listeners thought a physician can bill for a shared visit if available by phone. And 17% said a shared visit requires direct supervision. And 68% said the physician must personally document her work. David, give us the correct answer, please. The correct answer was the first one. 10% were right. There is no federal regulation addressing shared visits. Thank you very much, Chuck. Thank you, David. And thank you, Nancy, very much. That's going to be a wrap for us. And I want to thank you for starting off your week with us today. Special thanks to Dwayne Abbey, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard. Alan Pink, Sam McDavid, Glazer, Ronald Hirsch, Marvin Mitchell, and our special guest, William Domping. We thank you again for being with us. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thanks again, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.